0: Can you hear me now? Yes? Not very well? Can you hear me now? Yes? No? Yes? Oh, oh.
1: <laughs>
0: now? Yes? Oh, this is an uncomfortable angle, but we'll do the best we can. How about now? Okay. Uh, Hello. Hello. (laughs) I'm Vivian Gornick, and I welcome you to this evening. Um, We've been waiting for Toni Morrison to arrive, and I'm sure she will soon, but we decided we'd better start um, at this moment anyway. Um, Now then, I'd like to introduce the evening. In 1941, E.M. Forster delivered a memorial lecture on Virginia Woolf, who had taken her own life the year before. In this lecture, Forster spoke of many elements of Woolf's life and work, summing up as best he could all the salient features he thought went to make up this quite remarkable person and writer. In the course of this lecture, he also spoke of her feminism, and here is what Forster said of Woolf's feminism. Feminism inspired one of the most brilliant of her works, the charming and persuasive A Room of One's Own. Feminism is also responsible for the worst of her books, the cantankerous Three Guineas. There are spots of it all over her work and it was constantly in her mind. She was convinced that society is man-made, that the chief occupations of men are the shedding of blood, the making of money, the giving of orders, and the wearing of uniforms and that none of these occupations is admirable. Women dress up for fun or prettiness, men for pomposity. And she had no mercy on the judge in his wig, the general in his bits and bobs of ribbon, the bishop in his robes, or even on the harmless don in his gown. She felt that all these mummers were putting something across over which women had never been consulted and which she, at any rate, disliked. She declined to cooperate, in theory and sometimes in fact. She refused to sit on committees or to sign appeals on the ground that women must not condone this tragic, male-made mess or accept the crumbs of power which men throw them occasionally from their hideous feast. Like Lysistrata, she withdrew. In my judgment, still Foster speaking, There is something old-fashioned about this extreme feminism. This was 1941. (laughs) It dates back to her suffragette youth of the 1910s, when men kissed girls to distract them from wanting the vote, and very properly provoked her wrath. By the 1930s, she had much less to complain of, and seems to keep on grumbling from habit. She complained, and rightly, that though women today have won admission into the professions and trades, they usually encounter a male conspiracy when they try to get to the top. But she did not appreciate that the conspiracy is weakening yearly and that before long, women will be quite as powerful for good or evil as men. She was sensible about the past. About the present, she was sometimes unreasonable. (laughs) However, I speak as a man here and as an elderly one. The best judges of her feminism are neither elderly men nor elderly women, but young women. If they think that it expresses an existing grievance, they are right." And E.M. Forster. I don't know how young we all are, but here we stand tonight, 47 years after these words were spoken, because two years ago, at an international PEN Congress held in New York, Only a fraction of the speakers on all the various panels were women. And this came about in an organization, American Pen, whose membership is fully one half women. It was apparent then that conspiracy or no conspiracy, writers who were women had gained entry but were not yet integrated into their own professional life. That recognition of these writers as people who occupied a sufficient number of spaces on the intellectual spectrum from competent to distinguished had not yet been accorded. That there was room on the platform for the brilliant exception, but not for the very many who are simply good, serious, interesting. Of whom among the panelists, needless to say, there were countless numbers because obviously those panels were not constructed of unlimited amounts of the brilliant exception among men. The Women's Committee of Penn was formed out of that eye-opening event. It was formed because clearly it was still necessary for us to go on being unreasonable because the struggle for genuine integration of workers at every trade who are women into every part of the world enterprise is still a necessity. It is in this spirit, the spirit of what I will call friendly struggle, that we have come together this evening to read the work of three women writers who are good, serious, interesting, and to hear those works read by women writers who themselves are good, serious, interesting, if not downright distinguished. The works being read are by people who wrote in the early decades of the century, received recognition when they were writing, then fell into obscurity and have been rescued from that obscurity by the reprint programs of the feminist press in America and Virago Press in England. These reprint programs are somewhat indiscriminate and often the works are of social rather than literary interest. Novels and stories of testament and documentation that enrich our context lift from unreliable memory, the idea of women working at the arts. Such books often have the virtues of primitive writing, immediacy of response, and untutored eloquence, a shrewdness of observation. But only rarely are they works of imagination and sensibility with the power to transform experience into literature. The three writers you will hear this evening, Marjorie Latimer, Storm Jameson, Antonia White, serve no special interest, need no special pleading, require no special reader. The two presses in America and in England perform a service for all readers in republishing their work. Marjorie Latimer was born in Portage, Wisconsin in 1899 to a beautiful cultivated mother and a handsome Philistine father. She grew up glorious looking, tall, straight, golden-haired, possessed, it has been said, of a radiant presence. She knew when she was very young that she was a writer, and Zona Gale knew it also. Zona Gale was a popular writer in the early decades of the century who wrote stories about the Midwest, and in 1921 won the Pulitzer Prize for Miss Lulu Bett*, a kind of homegrown doll's house. She too lived in Portage. Marjorie and Zona met in 1917 when Marjorie was 18 years old and Zona 41. The two were immediately and irrevocably taken with one another. Zona saw in Marjorie a worthy disciple and companion. Marjorie saw in Zona the vindication of her own belief that she was special. Between them, they shaped a private conversation that picked up its skirts daily to cross Main Street, USA. The relationship was in equal part splendid and foolish, bold and manipulating, serving and self-serving, but it made Marjorie Latimer a writer. In August of 1932, Latimer died in childbirth. She was 33 years old. She left behind two novels and two collections of short fiction. Latimer had isolated her subject early and worked intently at it for a good 10 years. In her 20s, she said, there's only one possession worth having and that's the capacity to feel that life is a privilege and each person in it unique and will never appear again. This possession, she thought, endows all human beings with a will for moral beauty that is to be prized and served. Midwestern babetry, she saw, thwarted this will, choked off feeling life, destroyed the person within. The instrument of murder was the family. This was Latimer's fundamental insight and preoccupation. The insight was nurtured by her mother and the preoccupation by Zona Gale. Marjorie upset them both by going further than they themselves could have gone. She had an extraordinary grasp for one so young of the connection between anxiety and conservatism. She knew that beneath the love of property and propriety lay an immense fear of feeling. Her concentration on the fear is her modernism, Her sympathy to all involved makes her a writer of power, and her understanding of the complicated self-deception of those who serve moral beauty makes her one of rare intelligence. Guardian Angel, a novella, is the barely disguised story of Latimer's relationship with Zona Gale, and it contains Latimer writing at full strength. Here we have what she calls Fleeta Bain, a woman in her 50s endowed with talent, grace and spirit, known beyond the town for her paintings and drawings, and Vanessa, a lovely young person who worships Fleeta's devotion to the inner life. The novella traces the relationship between these two through the eyes of a Jamesian first-person narrator, Vanessa's Aunt Grace, who shares enough of their lives to see them as they see themselves and is distant enough to see them as the town sees them. The device works wonderfully. The prose is remarkably fluid, continually serving the exchange of power between the two women, as well as the background on which it lives itself out. Guardian Angel is quite brilliant. If Latimer had lived to rewrite, it could have been the main street American literature deserved. Tonight, Toni Morrison will read from Guardian Angel. In 1899, same year, Antonia White was born in London. She was the only child of a classics teacher who converted to Catholicism and took his wife and seven-year-old daughter into the church with him, Antonia attended a convent school, made a childish first marriage, suffered an inexplicable nervous breakdown, was incarcerated in an asylum for a year, lost her faith, married and divorced twice, bore two children, returned to the church, and lived in fear of incipient madness. She died in London in in 1980. When she was 16, Antonia White began a novel about her convent school days, then put the manuscript in a drawer. When she was 30, her husband convinced her to finish the book. It was published in 1933 as Frost in May. White did not write again until 1950. Then within four years, she produced three novels, which took the young girl in Frost in May through adolescence, early marriage, breakdown, and incarceration. All of these novels, long out of print, have been reissued by Virago. Frost in May is like nothing else Antonia White wrote. English critics have compared it to Colette's Claudine at school, but I think Mary McCarthy's Memories of a Catholic Girlhood is a more appropriate literary analogy. In both White and McCarthy, the nagging cumulative power of the Catholic experience that soaks through an alert, intelligent, independent girl is at the heart of the writing. Nanda Gray enters Lippington, a Catholic convent school at the edge of London at age nine, and remains there until she is expelled at 13. Nanda's ardent Catholicism is offset by an inner distance that allows her to hold some vital part of herself aloof. She responds to, yet is always taking the measure of those around her. White renders this complex inner reality with cool, clear prose that captures strong feeling in a net of restraint. Nanda becomes a transparent vessel for the experience of the convent, the haunting ceremonial life of Catholicism that gathers inside young lives, the debates about its meaning and substance that occupy preternaturally intelligent, blunt speaking little girls and smart, subtle nuns. The strength of the novel lies in its immediacy of feeling and in White's absorption with the world her characters move through. Catholicism is the richly idiomatic soil in which these children grow, finding themselves to be courageous, fearful, erotic, cunning, as they find the world to be unjust and interesting. Constrained by dogma, they are nevertheless engaged. Made anxious by spiritual dilemma, they become radiantly individual. White subtly balances the nationality of Catholicism and the interchange among the girls creating an atmosphere in which young people brood themselves into beginning their lives. Tonight, Cynthia MacDonald will read from Frost in May. Storm Jameson was born in 1891 on the coast of Yorkshire in a town called Whitby. Imagine Edna Millay growing up in Camden, Maine, and you've more or less got it. Jameson may still be alive, nearly 100 years old now and living in Cambridge. A few years ago, Sharon Thompson introduced Jameson to the readers of The Village Voice with a long review of her work. I cannot improve on Thompson, so I'll give her to you. Thompson writes, Storm Jameson began to write in the early years of the century, a time she has said we cannot imagine. Jameson writes, never to have known anything about war, and so never to have been afraid. In her 90s now, she wrote through two world wars and two marriages, 45 novels in all, several books of criticism, and a two-volume autobiography. If anyone writes to us from the grave, it will be this woman. (laughs) Upon hearing that a German plane had quote, dropped its bombs on Reading, a small, completely undefended town, killing only civilians, among them my young sister. She finished the sentence she had begun before the interruption. In this extravagant, compulsive stream of productivity, she's the novelist I wished for in mid-childhood. She who would write so much I could read her till I died, a narrative companion for life. (laughs) Jameson was a great correspondent, not a romancer. In the first decade of this century, she lowered her plum to the middle level of an intelligent woman's mind and began to write down what she found. She wrote from the inside out, without flinching, the story of her life and the lives of those around her, from the idyllic time before the wars, through the terrible reassessments of our species that the wars forced. She was a ship captain's daughter, she went to university by the skin of her mother's teeth. She had a taste for love and sex, married too soon because her mother read her lover's letters and thought there was nothing else for her to do, <laughs> approached childbirth forewarned only by the account in Anna Karenina. <laughs> Not long after the birth of her son, she left her husband. Her, quote, mania against domestic life, unquote, as she called it, Propelled her to London, where she lived in bedsitters most of the rest of her life. It was a productive arrangement. While her landladies dusted, she wrote novels. As an ad writer, she belonged to one of the first cohorts of career women to become copywriters and editors and and what was called what was dubiously called free women. In the twenties, she was British agent for Alfred Knopf. Later, she became president of, of British Penn. She wrote rapidly for the money she claimed, but I don't know. In any event, her speed seems to have forced her to write down what she was really thinking and feeling. She reveals herself to possess tough, selfish desire, sharp, realistic social conscience, cutthroat greed for passion, a successful career, and responsible compassion. Those compass points seem modern to me well, early 80s feminist, and fairly uncensored. That's the end of Thompson. In her novels, Storm Jameson has a voice of middling power. But when she was in her 70s, Jameson sat down to write what became a monumental two-volume autobiography called Journey from the North. And here she speaks in a voice of great power. The strength and surprise of her sentences are a joy. They reveal a personality alive in the act of translating thought and feeling, sensation and summary into expressive language. Tonight, Maureen Howard will read from the first volume of Journey from the North. And now I give you Cynthia Macdonald reading from Frost in May.
2: I've admired, this is strange, yes, all right, but I feel as if I should sing, my mama done told me. (laughs) As I was saying, I've admired Antonia White for a long time since I found her books in the Virago series, and and I don't I, I think all of them have considerable interest. I think she also was a copywriter for yeah, part of her was, life, which is right. a like, so is right. interesting to think she about. No. Yeah,
3: she was. Anyway, anyway this is thing. a
2: a sure. chapter from uh, the the uh, second half of the book, near the middle. I've had a glorious time but it's heaven to be back said Claire Rockingham she squeezed Rosario's arm and how are you two infants? it was the first night of the autumn term and the four had not seen each other for two months Nanda felt shy of the others traces of the holiday of other worlds still clung to them I'm going to interrupt to ask if you can hear me Claire wore silk stockings and frivolous bronze shoes. Rosario had pearls in her ears, a wilted white bow drooped on Leone's hair. She would not feel completely happy until tomorrow when they would all be subdued to the comforting impersonality of of uniform. I did such heaps of things in Leipzig that I hardly scribbled a syllable even to Rosario, chattered Claire, her brown eyes more feverishly bright, more restless than ever. I went to drawing classes for one thing. No one knows anything about art over here. I'm never going to draw one of Ma- Mother Roscoe's idiotic old plaster casts again. Do you know what a life class is? I never told my dismal chaperone or she'd have had to fit. The models are quite naked. Don't be shocked, Rosario darling. It's so fascinating drawing them that you forget all about that. "'Wouldn't it be fun to have a life class at Lippington? "'And wouldn't Nanda make the sweetest little nude? "'Oh, shut up, Claire,' said Nanda, "'blushing so much that her skin felt as if it would crack. "'Well, I'll tell you something edifying. "'I went to Mass every single Sunday, "'and I fairly brandished my rosary in my chaperone's face. "'She was so busy writing home to my family "'about my shocking behavior "'that she forgot to keep her eye on me half the time.' You see, they sent me to Leipzig in the hopes that I'd forget all about this Catholic business. If they're so afraid of your becoming a papist, why don't they take you away from Lippington, asked Leonie sensibly. Well, I've been to three schools before and run away from all of them, and they certainly don't want me at home yet. You see, they're trying to marry off Isabel, that's my eldest sister, and they don't want me in the way. For fear of spoiling her chances with your fatal beauty." Leone said. Good Lord, no, but men bore Isabel frightfully, and we get a lot of fun out of ragging her wretched prétendant. When we were together, we get much better ideas. Last Christmas, there was a man quite dumb with admiration for Isabel, and he was awfully rich and appropriate and all that, but we couldn't stand him. So she made him eat some chocolates, though he didn't want to in the least, and we'd filled all the chocolates with cascara. He never came back. <laughs> Rosario withdrew her arm from Claire's. What barbarians you English are. But he was awful, Rosario. Really, he was. As red as a radish and stupid as a bull. Not in the least like. She bit, paused and bit her lip. No, I can't tell you that. A love affair in the holidays, I suppose, said Leonie with an air of ineffable boredom. Really, Claire, you're too primitive. (laughs) Not a love affair at all, said Claire crossly. I just happened to meet a rather interesting Prussian painter at the art school, that's all. (laughs) We used to read Heine together, and once we actually had a glass of beer at a cafe. He was terribly intelligent, and there was none of that nonsense of, of treating one like a schoolgirl. You'd better get him out of your mind, advised Leonie, because there's certainly going to be a war with Germany within the next year or two. I was in Berlin and Vienna in August, and there's a lot of talk about it. So your precious artist will get conscripted, and one of your hearty brothers will probably put a bullet through his cropped head. <laughs> I love to hear little Leo talking about what goes on behind the scenes in diplomacy, sneered Claire, trying not very successfully to get her own back. But Rosario flew to Leonie's defense. She knows a lot, she insisted in her soft, fierce voice. Papa has the greatest respect for her mind. He says she should have been a man. (laughs) I like old men best, said Leonie simply. They are so restful. (laughs) And they often forget one is there after they have patted one's head and go on talking and one overhears the most interesting
0: things.
2: (laughs) If they were a war with Germany, said Nanda suddenly, you would be an enemy, wouldn't you, Leo? I'm not sure, mused Leonie. It depends whether I went in with my German relations or my French ones. In the Franco-Prussian war, I had a great uncle on each side. Your father's German anyhow, persisted Claire. Hoch der Kaiser, nationality is all rot anyhow. How can you say that, flamed Rosario? I would rather be dead than be anything but Spanish. And however madly in love with anyone I might be, I wouldn't marry him unless he was Spanish to the backbone. What did you do with your holidays, beautiful savage, asked Leonie. We were in Biarritz nearly all the time. It was very gay and amusing. There was a dance for Alita given by my aunt de De las Rojas, and I was not supposed to be going because I am not properly out. But the king himself saw me at a polo match in the afternoon and asked Papa's a special favor that I should come. And did you dance with the king, said Claire, touching her sleeve? I wish I could have seen you. Yes, I danced with him, but I had no time to get a proper frock and so I had to wear an old pink chiffon that is very jeune fille, but Alita looked wonderful. Papa was pleased, but my aunt was angry. She said, why the child's actually made up. (laughs) And what did the king say, asked Nanda. My aunt told me that he and Alita, he said Alita was a great beauty, but that he preferred the little wild Palencia. Meaning you, smiled Claire. Yes, admitted Rosario with complete simplicity. Then you might be queen of Spain someday. Rosario turned a thunderous blue and black gaze on Claire. How can you be so utterly disloyal and, and so utterly vulgar, she flashed. Without another word, she swung around, tossing her great golden plume of hair and strode away angrily, arms crossed and head thrust forward. Suddenly bold, Nanda Caught Claire's wrist. Don't go after her, she begged. Leonie had already sauntered off, whistling Die Wacht am Rhein with an air of masculine indifference. But I must go, whispered Claire, her novel- nostrils quivering and her eyes blind and bright as a hare's. Must go, she insisted, wrenching away from Nanda. I wish you'd be a little proud sometimes, Claire, said Nanda in a small, cold, even voice. But Claire, staggering a little on her high bronze heels, was already running toward the corner where Rosario had disappeared. The term began peacefully enough. There was the usual reshuffling of classes and a distribution of rewards at which Nanda was agreeably surprised by being awarded a green ribbon. Much elated, she wrote home to her parents. I'm awfully glad, but I didn't really expect it. The school and the nuns vote for it, you know. Of course, the others tease me about it a good deal, and so does Mother Percival. I've been moved up, but she is still taking our class. I'm an angel now, too. We've got four congregations, you know. Holy Child, St. Aloysius, Angels, and Children of Mary. You wear your medal on white ribbon on feast days, and there is a sort of secret meeting on Saturday evenings with Mother Radcliffe, and you have a book of rules that only other angels may read. <coughs> Leonie's uncle has given her a horse and a violin. She has got the violin here, but she is very angry that she can't have the horse too. She's going to play in the hockey match against the five wounds at Southsea, And we are all going to do penances all day so that we may win. Our table is going to put salt instead of sugar on the stewed fruit. I wonder if the South Sea children will do the same. Do pray hard that Claire may become a Catholic. I know she wants to, really. I think she looks prettier than ever since she came back from Germany. Most people look ugly with freckles, but hers suit her. I've never seen anyone with such bright eyes either. They're brown, but if you look very closely, they have little green rays, like chips of emerald in them. Leo has given me an ivory card case. It's Turkish, I think, all inlaid and lined with sandalwood, which smells heavenly." I don't suppose I shall ever actually want a card case, but it's lovely to have. There is a rumor that a cardinal is coming sometime this term. I hope it's true because it will mean a play and a holiday. The next day in the middle of a French lesson, a blue ribbon put her head officiously around the door and said, please mother, Nanda Gray is to see mother Radcliffe at once. With a palpitating heart, Nanda tore off her apron and fidgeted in her pocket for her gloves. "'Here, take mine,' whispered Leonie, holding out a seedy pair. "'And don't look so terrified. She can't hang you.' But this scarcely comforted Nanda as she stood knocking at Mother Radcliffe's door. As she knocked, she feverishly but unsuccessfully examined her conscience for some misdeed. At last... After about half an hour, as it seemed to her, a cold, sweet voice called, Come in. But when she entered, Mother Radcliffe did not look up. She went on entering figures in a beautiful square, upright hand in a large notebook. When she reached the end of the column, she went back and very carefully crossed all the tails of the sevens. Nanda's heart was bumping so hard against her ribs that she thought Mother Radcliffe must hear it. To calm herself, she began to make an inventory of the room. One red carpet, one table covered with green serge, faded, one crucifix, no, two crucifixes, one portrait of Mother Guillemin, one portrait of Leo Thirteenth. One statue of Our Lady of Lourdes, two chairs. Mother Radcliffe looked up suddenly and seemed to notice Nanda for the first time. Having noticed her, she looked at her with a polite but increasing interest. She took off her glasses, polished them, and replaced them, fixing her gaze not on Nanda's face but somewhere about her collar. At last, she said with a sudden smile as if she recognized her, Ah, Nanda Gray. Uh, Yes, I sent for you, Nanda, did I not? Uh, Sit down, child, and don't fidget so. Nanda sat down on the edge of a chair. Mother Radcliffe's smile was wiped out as suddenly as it had appeared. She stared at Nanda with a stern and puzzled air. Well, and what do you have to say for yourself? Please, Mother, I don't know why you wanted to see me, Nanda muttered. No," said Mother Radcliffe very mildly. With extreme deliberation, she opened a large file and extracted a sheet of note paper. Nanda recognized her own handwriting. Perhaps you can guess now," hazarded the nun. "Did I forget to leave the envelope open?" suggested Nanda hopefully. Mother Radcliffe made a little face at the letter as if she had, uh, as if it gave off an unpleasant smell. "'No, you left it open,' she admitted, "'although I should not have been surprised "'had you wished to close it. "'Surely you realize, my dear, "'that the tone of this letter is not at all "'what we expect to find in the correspondence "'of a child of the five wounds.'" "'Is it? Is it the grammar?' asked Nanda in a parched voice. "'No, the grammar is slipshod enough.'" but it is the whole spirit of the contents to which I am objecting. Mother Ratcliffe peered again at the letter through her large clear glasses. The glasses were steel rimmed, and Nanda observed that they had been neatly mended with a bandage of black thread. Then she looked very thoughtfully at Nanda. You know quite well that the school rule does not approve of particular friendships. They are against charity to begin with, and they lead, moreover, to dangerous and unhealthy indulgence of feeling. I do not think your mother and father will share your rather morbid interest in Claire Rockingham's appearance. Chips of emerald. Really, Nanda, aren't you rather ashamed at the sheer silliness of it? Nanda looked at her shoes. Yes, I suppose so, she muttered. Talking of green things, said Mother Radcliffe very blandly, "'What about the ribbon you are wearing? "'I suppose you don't want by any chance "'to lose that particular chip of emerald, do you?' "'No, Mother. "'Your father will be so pleased to know about it. "'You tell him in this unfortunate letter I observe, "'but I have already written to him about it, "'so that if you lost it, "'he would be very disappointed indeed, would he not?' "'Yes, Mother,' said Nanda.' She was calming down, now that she knew the worst, and beginning to feel bored and restless. Why, oh why, at Lippington, couldn't they go straight to a point and have done with it? Your father is a convert, is he not? Conversion is a great grace, but the Catholic outlook, Catholic breeding, shall we say, does not come in one generation, or even two or three. So I suppose I must overlook this extraordinary lapse in your case, Nanda. Of course I shall destroy this wretched letter. At least I shall not send it. You will write another letter home during your midday recreation, and I hope in the future I shall see you about more with friends of your own age. There are girls such as Marjorie Appleyard and Monica Owen, who are about your equal in years and in station of life. I think you would do well to cultivate their society. You may go." With a very stiff curtsy, Nanda turned to the door, but instead of dropping her eyes, she looked very straight at Mother Radcliffe. The nun threw back her head and gave the merest ghost of a smile. You are very fond of your own way, aren't you, Nanda? Yes, I suppose so, Mother. And do you know that no character is any good in this world unless that will has been broken completely? Broken and reset in God's way. I don't think your will has been quite broken, my dear child, do you? Although Nanda did not lose her green ribbon as a result of this interview, she was considerably shaken by it. For a time, she actually avoided Claire and, in spite of Leo's mockery, cultivated the society of Marjorie and Monica. The experiment was not a great success, for Marjorie and Nanda bored each other even more disastrously than they had three years ago, while the unexpected attention warmed Monica's dim friendliness into an embarrassing devotion. (coughs) All the same, it did something to allay suspicion and a severe bout of teasing by Mother Percival which had begun the very day after Nanda's talk with the mistress of discipline, died down into a week, after a week into an occasional mild sarcasm. As in the Jesuit order, every child was under constant observation. And the results of this observation were made known by secret weekly reports to Mother Radcliffe and the Superior. But how detailed such reports could be, covering not only the broad outlines of a character but the minutest physical peculiarities and nervous habits. Nanda did not realize until she saw Mother Radcliffe play the famous key game. In the afternoon of some minor holiday, Mother Radcliffe summoned the whole senior school into St. Stanislas Kostika, the assembly room. In her hands, she held an ordinary door key. I am going, she announced. To play a rather unusual game which is played here from time to time and which we call the mistress of disciplines game. There are about 80 of you here all except the new ones fairly well known to me, better known perhaps than you realize. I shall go out of the room for a few minutes and the head of the school Rose McLean will give this key to anyone she chooses. No one is to speak while this is being done, and no names are to be spoken. Rose may keep the key herself if she likes. I think you will all trust me sufficiently not to think of Rose as a kind of conjurer's accomplice. She may give it to anyone in this room, but I ask her not to give it to any child who is actually new this term. When I come in again, you will all remain in complete silence while I try to discover, without asking any questions... Which of you is hiding the key? When I think I know, I shall not say any name, but I shall give you indications by which you will all know whether or not I have guessed right. She left the room and rose after a little thought, gave the key to Rosario de Palencia, who put it in her pocket. As Mother Radcliffe re-entered, every child composed her face into an unnatural blankness. The nun walked slowly down the rows of seated figures, peering into each face, skimming over some, and gazing for nearly a minute at others. In front of Nanda, she stopped for a long time, and although she had not the key, Nanda felt herself blush guiltily. At Rosario, she gave only a swift glance. After about a quarter of an hour of nervous tension, Mother Radcliffe returned to her table, and the whole school relaxed with a flutter of relief. Staring straight ahead of her, Mother Radcliffe began dreamily. We have been at Lippington, I think, for some years. We have not any ribbon, though we are a child of Mary. Yet we are one of those personalities which are well known to the whole school. We are not English. We come from a country where most of the inhabitants are dark, yet we have fair hair and do not conform to the usual custom of wearing that hair in a plate. We are courteous, but we are very proud, and perhaps we are rather passionate as well. We love the arts, especially music, and we have no great aptitude for mathematics. We are perhaps a little old for our age and have been out in the world more than an English girl of our age, which is about 17. Some months ago, we suffered a great loss, a loss which we feel more than we admit. But she was interrupted by the muffled clapping of 80 gloved hands. She smiled as Rosario whipped the key out of her pocket and waved it triumphantly. Three more times, Mother Radcliffe performed her strange trick, but at the suggestion of a fourth attempt, she shook her head. This game is rather strange, she said, and I think we will not have any more thought reading today. As she gave the signal for the gathering to break up, Nanda noticed that she looked pinched and whiter than usual, while the hand holding the signal trembled. My dear, isn't it too uncanny, shrieked Claire to Leonie as the school chattering rather hysterically ran out to the playgrounds. Rather beastly, I think, growled Leonie. I hate that sort of spiritual showing off. If we had dossiers of the community as they have of us, I dare say we could bring off this Sherlock Holmes business just as successfully. Yes, but how did she do it? I watched Rosaria's face the whole time and she never blinked an eyelid. She probably noticed you, my dear Watson, said Leonie. There's a rational explanation of most miracles. Nanda, who was passing, caught the last word and exclaimed, Don't you believe in miracles, Leo? Not entirely, my child, but I'm willing to enter into the spirit of them. Like all the old men who bellow that they believe in fairies when Tinkerbell is at her last gasp, But you wrote such a lovely and convincing one for your Christmas story, protested Nanda. I like the Catholic way of looking at things, said Leo. Any way of looking at life is a fairy story and I prefer mine with lots of improbable embellishments. I think angels and devils are much more amusing than microbes and Mr. Wells' noble scientists. But you're a pagan, asserted Claire in a shocked voice. So are hundreds of practicing Catholics. I could tell you things about the Renaissance popes that would make your hair stand on end. I'm beginning to think there's something to be said for being a Protestant after all, said Claire. Oh, no, Claire, Nanda assured her, horrified at seeing the prospective convert wavering. Don't you see it's just another proof that the Church really is divine and inspired? Any other institution would have been done for centuries ago with so much corruption in individual (laughs) members. There really is something that keeps it going in spite of all of that, and the gates of hell don't prevail in spite of all sorts of horrors. Go it, Nanda, mocked Leone. No one like a convert for getting up the subject good and strong. Yet I wouldn't mind betting that 20 years from now, she's a red-hot foolproof rationalist while I'm a model Catholic mother with all my children festooned with scapulars and a pious sodality meeting every afternoon in my drawing room. She made a face and sauntered away, leaving the other two together for the first time for many weeks. One never sees you these days, infant, began Claire at once. Are you afraid of being contaminated by a poor heretic? Of course not, said Nanda uncomfortably, but Mother Percival is always herding us together to play hockey or something, and... We hardly ever get a chance to speak to the other divisions. <coughs> but even on holidays, one never sees anything of you, persisted Claire. I believe you've lost interest in me and don't care whether I become a Catholic or not. Oh, but I do, protested Nanda. I want you to awfully, really, Claire. Only there's nothing any of us can do but pray for you. "'Aren't you all kind?' said Claire sarcastically. "'I suppose the truth is we're a little puffed up now. "'We've got a green ribbon.' "'Don't be a beast,' Nanda," flared. "'You know that's got nothing whatever to do with it. "'Anyway, I'm pretty sure to lose it soon.' "'Claire changed her tone. "'I'm so awfully unhappy,' she said softly, "'screwing up her bright eyes. "'I don't suppose you can understand it at your age.' Besides, I don't believe fair people can really understand sorrow at any age. Deeply offended, Nanda assured her that she understood every variety of suffering with the greatest sympathy. Really, I do, Claire, she said, nodding very sagely. I can't show it because I haven't got the right sort of face. And if you knew how I loathed being fair and having idiotic dimples, you'd realize that there's quite a lot of suffering in that. (laughs) <laughs> it's as bad as being deformed almost she added gloomily claire began to crow with laughter you're adorable baby she cried but nanda was by no means soothed she edged away with great dignity as claire attempted to tweak her ear there was silence for a minute Then claire said sadly i don't "'Oh, nonsense, Claire,' she said in a pleased voice. "'But I'm not only thinking of mental suffering,' went on, Claire. "'Though goodness knows I have enough of that. "'It's physical suffering, too. "'I get the most frightful headaches.' "'Well, why not see Mother Reagan about them?' suggested Nanda helpfully. "'She wouldn't understand,' Claire assured her. "'I have spoken about them, but the fool doctor here says he can't find anything the matter. "'I'll just have to bear them, I suppose.' Perhaps they'll help me to get converted, but I've got a queer feeling that they're a kind of warning. Perhaps I won't live long. Don't look so sad, darling. What does it matter anyway? But I'd like to die a Catholic.
0: Oh, Maureen, Maureen, Maureen Howard <gasps> will now read Storm Just Jameson. <laughs> and there are, the so <laughs> there are three seats in the front. <laughs> there are three seats in the front.
3: How is <laughs> that happening? Oh, great. I guess my shoes poured yeah. the
0: water and lost
2: it. But I don't. um. us give can I see you? Can I see you? Ooh!
1: are <laughs> not doing afraid. This errors. <laughs> it should be alright by the time she puts it back. If not, fix it. So I have my seat.
3: Is this the right mic? Is this the right mic? Can you hear me? Okay. I'm on tiptoe in order to do this. You can See how it goes. Well, I don't think I can hold it in my hand. It drives me nuts. I'll try this. Um, I believe at the Penn Con- uh, Congress in Lugano last year that one of the um, tributes and memorial tributes was to Storm Jameson. Oh, yeah? Yeah. hmm What is a record of my life worth, the life of a writer treated with justice in circles where camaraderie is a merciful rule? Perhaps little, except that as a life it spans three distinct ages, the middle-class heyday before 1914, the entre deux guerres, and the present, three ages so disparate that to a person who knows only the third, the others are unimaginable. Possibly I lack the coolness to give a dependable account of them. I can try. That arrogant, half-sarcastic phrase, it can be tried, is one I heard so often in my north-riding childhood that it has become an instinct. I seldom know when I'm being led astray by it. It was a servant saying, but a northern servant The span of my life is even longer than it seems, since its roots are twisted round hundreds of lives, passed in the same place. Only a life starting from centuries of familiarity with the same few fields and streets is better than fragmentary. If there is any tenacity tenacity in me, any constancy, if there is an eye under all the dissimilar eyes seen by those who know or knew me as a daughter... As a young woman, undisciplined, confident, absurd, as wife, as friend, the debt is owed to obscure men and women born and dying in the same isolated place. All I could do to destroy that pattern, I have done. The real story of a life would consist in a recital of the experiences, few or many, in which the whole self was engaged. The greater part of such a book would be very dull, since as often as not our whole self turns its back contemptuously on the so-called great moments and emotions and engages itself with trivialities, the shape of a particular hill, a road known in infancy, the movement of the wind through grass, the things we shall take with us at the last. will all be small. I wrote this or something very like it in a novel published 30 years ago. It's probably true. The pain and ecstasy of youth, the brief happiness, the long uncharted decline can be summed up in the tune of a once popular waltz of no merit. Or the point in a country lane, where the violence and hopelessness of a passion suddenly become obvious, or the moment when a word, a gesture, nothing in themselves gave the most acute sensual pleasure. None of this can be written about. The first thing I remember is the deck of a ship in sunlight, a lady, her face hidden from me by the parasol in her hand, is there in a low chair. My head, which does not reach above the arms of the chair, aches. I have just told her so. Without turning, she answers, Nonsense. Children don't have headaches. She must have been mistaken. Some indefinite time later, I am lying peaceably at the bottom of a crevice. Its walls, densely white, two persons, indistinct, are looking over the edge, and one of them says, She's sinking. The ship, I think. That the ship is sinking. Out there, it's no business of mine, and doesn't ruffle me. The voyage on which I so nearly died was one of my earliest, if not the first. It was certainly not my mother's first. In those days before human existence got out of hand, a sea captain had the right to take his wife with him on any voyage, even as far as the River Plate or the Far East. She knew one or two older women, childless, who had no shore home. All they possessed, their clothes, family photographs, curling tongs, shared the captain's cabin next the chart room with his clothing and the ship's papers. She, I believe, envied these free women while barely approving of them. Life in a house of her own often bored her. So long as she had an only child, she could go away easily. So many journeys begun before memory, so many half-obliterated departures. How could they fail to ruin my life? The impulse to go away has disturbed, delighted, mocked me, and is to blame for my failure to settle anywhere. I left one place with anguish, leaving behind half my soul, the less indifferent half. None of the many others I have lived in keep more than a thin pairing of it, thinner and less persistent than the shadow I catch sight of in Bordeaux or Antwerp of my mother, pausing to stare in a shop window at a hat she would buy if she could afford it, and were less arrogantly afraid of the foreign saleswoman. In those days, she was an elegant, the word is not used now, but it fitted her, coveting finely simple dresses and beautiful gloves. I doubt whether she was content anywhere any more than I am. I even doubt whether she felt the pleasure I rate higher than any other, that of being in a foreign town for the first time free of its probably mediocre streets and cafes, its sounds and the silence which encloses the stranger walking about in it, obliged to no one for her happiness. The restlessness comes me- to me through her. Where did she get it? From sea-going ancestors, from the North Sea, from the stones themselves of the little port with its memories of loss, flight, violence, Restless, adrift from the start Spiritually clumsy and imprudent Can I make sense of my life? If I can find the courage to stare coldly at its ghosts Including my own past selves Clumsy, ungovernable, young idiots And as coldly at the moments of happiness As at griefs, blunders, sins, humiliating failures Will the meaning, if there is a meaning, emerge? It can be tried I am too old to be mortified by a failure and in a word so sharply menaced by destruction as ours there is something friendly in the idea of going on gossiping to the last minute if it is no more than to call a friend's attention to the exquisite yellow of a dying leaf or to ask for news of a child the one who came last year to stay and tethered an imaginary horse in every room in the house As a very young child, I was mortally afraid of my grandfather. Yet the one time I had anything to do with him, then he behaved with great gentleness. My mother had been thrashing me. Made reckless by my fear of pain, I ran wildly around my bedroom, howling, trying to dodge the cane. Exhausted, she told me, I must bring your grandfather to deal with you. She left the house and I waited in the state of self-induced apathy, a sort of stupor made up of dislike, of showing distress, fear of being pitied, and a purely instinctive animal immobility. Crouched on the landing outside my room, I watched my grandfather between the balusters as he came up the last flight. He halted halfway up, stared at me for a moment, and to my great astonishment said only, you shouldn't wear your mother out. (laughs) then turned and went down. (laughs) Only at this moment as I write 60 years after the event I realize that when my grandfather halted and looked up he saw a desperate little animal behind bars. His second wife was my father's mother. The two families were kept apart. My mother cannot have even had the most short-lived sense that she was marrying a stepbrother. Certainly, she never regarded her mother-in-law as a stepmother. She disliked her. One day, when she was an old woman herself, she spoke to me about her with all the bitterness of a high-spirited young girl. She was a wicked woman, malicious, a willful liar, quite unscrupulous, and she had the tongue of a viper. I remember her saying to a servant who had just married, I hope you'll have ten bairns and not a bite to put in their mouths. She was capable of any trick. I had no feeling for her, hardly even distaste. She handed out port and Christmas cake once a year, and pennies when we were taken to visit her on Sunday morning. She was then quince yellow and shrunken, wearing lace caps over the sparse remains of black hair. In the end, she too had a stroke and lay in the room next her husband's, speechless. The stroke paralyzed her tongue. My mother had one word for this, justice. (laughs) Of the uncounted places I have lived in for years or months, only one haunts me. Since I left it for good, I have been adrift and shall drift to my death, yet I cannot go back there any more than a tree cut down could return to its roots left in the ground. I cannot be sure that everything I remember about a now-vanished Whitby is my own memory or my mother's. The most grotesque memories are probably hers, isolated as she thought herself with a crop of eccentrics, harmless fools, misers, house devils, despots male and some female. In the early years of my childhood, Whitby was still beautiful. It no longer built ships, but the skeleton of two old yards were rotting placidly, weeds thrusting between the stones and iron rings, on the edge of the upper harbor. I have a confused memory of a launching, perhaps the last. I should admit at once that for me, Yorkshire is Whitby, but not the town you will see if you go there now in search of a happiness which depends on a place... Since my fortunate infancy, the high-headed lanes and fields, the bare clifftops covered with short springing grass, have been (coughs) disfigured by a brick rash, the ancient pier intolerably taw drifted, the splendid subscription library thrown away, and heaven knows what other outrage or perversion. The soul of an old ship inhabits the Norman church and its three-decker pulpit. Ship's carpenters put up the present roof and the windows under it are so like cabin windows that on the rare Sundays when we occupied my grandfather's pew in one of the galleries, I could only dream of voyages. Outside, the dust of Saxons, Danes, monks, shipbuilders, master mariners, lies deep under the rank grass between wrinkled gravestones eaten by the saw. Not a great way beyond the upper harbor The hills begin to fold in A few miles inland They rise to a wide stretch of moor In my childhood the moor road From Pickering to Whitby Said all there is to say About the instinct for solitude Sharper than the impulse to herd Pewits, seagulls, a few grouse And at a certain point the first sight Piercing the heart of the church and the abbey Clinging to the east cliff If I think of anything at the end of my life, it will probably be the sea, the North Sea. The milky blue of summer, the savagery of winter, waves rearing 30 feet to break against the pier lighthouse. Suave, icy, gentle, enticing, treacherous, charging the air with splinters of light and the houses with exotic junk. Shells from Veracruz, enormous dried seeds like the shrunken trophies of headhunters, boxes and silk screens from Japan, eggshell china, elaborate French clocks, an African necklace, ostrich eggs on which I copied in oil paint, the birds and flowers from a great book of foreign birds. Bringing into a fever a bacillus of restlessness and violence to creep into the veins, not all veins, only those liable to catch the fever. The year after her third child was born, my mother went off on a long voyage. She put me up to board with the Mrs. Corney. During the day, I was unconcerned, but the moment I had to be put to bed in the room I shared with the eldest, Miss Corney, my tears started of themselves and flowed torrentially for more than an hour. This happened every night for three or four months. I could not explain my despair to the poor woman, and she had to let me cry myself into the sleep of exhaustion. It was my first experience of loss, and my grief was as atrocious as any I've felt since. The second time my mother left on a long voyage, I felt nothing. But at the station, I pretended to cry, for fear she should be disappointed. Already at the age of eight, I was an accomplished hypocrite. On the other hand, my mother never allowed anyone, friend or stranger, to criticize her children. Her passionate loyalty and devotion, her severity, the merciless thrashings, sprang from one and the same impulse. We were to have everything she could get for us and be everything she admired. Upright, truthful, well-mannered, clever, quick, sincere. How could it have entered her head that insincerity was one of the lessons I learned early and thoroughly? Very early, very thoroughly. A nerve led directly from my young mind to hers. I knew instantly what she wanted to say to me, what it would please her to hear, what she wanted. She was curiously reluctant to say frankly, I want this, I would like to do that. I see now that she hated, as I do, to be seen caring. When she coveted something she could not afford, I encouraged her to buy it. This habit became fixed to the end of her life. I encouraged her in extravagances and spent recklessly on her. Even as children, we somehow scraped up the money to give her a birthday present she would value. Once my brother refused to hand over his small savings and gave her his own choice of present, a penny loaf with a tulip stuck in it. She did not thank him. What she wanted, she wanted blindly, unable for the time to see anything else in the world, and I too. My terrible anxiety for her to be happy took in the most trivial events. Playing bezique with her, I tried not to win. When we planned a day in the country, I prayed feverishly for son. I cannot remember a time when I was not aware and with what helpless pity that her life had disappointed her. Ah, but how gay she could be A fine day made her madly happy She hurried us out of the house To walk the four or five miles to the moors The road climbing slowly between stone fences Or when my Aunt Mary was still alive to Car Hill But she was rarely contented How, given what she was, could she be? Take a young, attractive woman With passion for change and movement And shut her up with three unpredictable children In a house in a small town And what could come of it? But boredom, an agonizing boredom. I only understood years later, at a time when I was tempted to knock my own head against the wall, the fits of rage in which she jerked the Venetian blinds in her room, up and down, up and down, for the relief of hearing the crash. She had married too young, a man of inf- inferior to her in breeding, sensitivity, warmth of heart, and force of character. He had his own courage, tenacity, dreams, but she was too young, too uncompromising to forgive him traits that vexed her and roused her contempt. She never understood or forgave him a habit of lying about himself, if you can call it lying, the instinct to appear clever or cunning or to defend himself from her scathing tongue. She baffled and tormented him and herself for the disappointments and revulsions he made her suffer. Her passion for perfection in everything she owned, a dress, the furniture of her room, scandalized him. No Whitby sea captain's wife clothed herself and her children as she did, or bought Dresden China costly rugs, hepple white chairs, searching antique shops for bargains, bidding at auction sales. She spent on these things every penny that came into her hands, saving only in order to spend— Before their marriage, she told me, he had begged her to correct his clumsiness and ignorance. Of his mother's three sons, he was the only one who suffered from the poverty into which the defaulting solicitor threw her. At the age of 13, he was taken from school and sent as apprentice in a sailing ship to be schooled in bitter hardship and cruelty. An eager, haphazard reader, he missaw words. A geranium became a genarium on his tongue and the like. His manners, unless he was able to condescend, were rough and too familiar. He made a cult of shabbiness and would let a new uniform molder in his cabin, unworn for years. After their marriage, he would have nothing to do with her attempts to teach him a few graces used in his ship to the absolute authority of a captain, he might have bullied her and us if she had not, from the very start, been too much for him, too quick-witted, too lively, too stubborn, and overbearing. He would have done better, better for himself, to marry a stupid or an easy-going young woman. Only in physical courage and a deep obstinacy was he her equal, their long separations months long stretched the gap between them to an abyss before he had been home longer than a week they were quarreling bitterly the bitterness the impatience were on her side the stubborn incomprehension and lack of generosity his but she was fully as stubborn as he a quarrel might last days and be followed by a reconciliation that must once have been eager the passionate repentance of a quick-hearted young woman but with the years became mere dry exhaustion. Not until he died did I see that he too was to be pitied and respected. He was brave, torturous, full of mean resentments, grudging, naively vain, and patient. He had a streak of fantasy that in other circumstances might have changed his life. He kept a commonplace book into which he copied verses and anecdotes that impressed him. When he could, he took a long, solitary walk. I have a photograph he sent me when I was living in London in the 30s. He was then 80, of a stretch of moorland with one signpost. On the back he had written, Place for Dreams. What dreams? My mother had two voices, the harsh, penetrating one she used in anger. It could sharpen to a cruel mockery. And the other, her singing voice, strong and untrained, but clear and perfectly true. It's nothing but a shower, just a quarter of an hour. Don't you think you'd better shelter neath the chestnut tree? For the wind is blowing sweet, and there are daisies at your feet. And if you'd like to dance, I will pipe for you hear the voice breaks off. I strain after it. It swells on a note, falters, dies. When she sang hymns, we bawled them with her. If anyone were to sing, God be with you till we meet again, in my hearing, I should die of grief. She expected and wanted so much and had so little. She gave me more than my ludicrous conviction of being responsible for other people and of being a laughing stock, I have her bottomless weight of boredom, a never-appeased restlessness which becomes torture in surroundings I dislike, and the jeering violence I keep out of sight, and, too, a deep, deeper-than-everything-else indifference, which may only be fear. My working patience and stubbornness I owe to that master mariner with the clouded blue eyes and a mind full of bits and pieces like a sea chest. Do not imagine that as children we were unhappy, far from it. We were storing up sensuous wealth for a lifetime. A closed society, we played endless ingenious games together, and we had the sea a boundless blue world steeped in light, in a radiance of sun and salt, sauntering in and out of gently breathing waves or racing in front of them, bare, wet legs smarting from the sand grains driven into the skin. With my mother, we learned a rhythm of country walks. In February, the snowdrops in the woods of Mulgrave Castle. The pale yellow of primroses scattered across the fields above the cars in April. Thick oozing yellow of bog buttercups and an enormous bird cherry, a dazzling cloud of white in May. Wild roses, orchids, foxgloves in the hot, narrow June lanes below the moor. And in August and September, the moors themselves, the intoxicating scent... The humming of flies and bees, the great cloud shapes passing overhead, all, all belonged to years before I knew the meaning of time. My mother was zealous for my future. Was it she or I who discovered that three county scholarships? worth 60 pounds were awarded yearly in each riding on the results of the matriculation examination. Only three, and every school in the riding would enter its scholars. It was my one chance. 60 pounds would cover the fees at a provincial university. In our innocence, all universities were equal. And she could, she said, find another pound or 30 shilling a week for my living expenses, It occurred to neither of us to ask my father for help. I had already passed the three Cambridge examinations. To take the third, the senior, I had to spend the week in Scarborough with two pupil teachers who were sitting for it. A day in Scarborough was nothing new. We went five or six times a year, she and I, on the early train. This day, except for the interview with Mr. Tetley, was like any other. I have tried since to imagine his feelings when, after a sentence or two, my mother said coldly, my daughter will come to the school in September to take the matriculation next June and get a county scholarship. He glanced from her face to mine. At that time, I was 16, and for years after, I had a childishly round face and a habit of staring fixedly from wide open, unclear eyes. He must have thought us both a little mad. There are only three of them, he said. Yes, she must take one of them. I hope she will, he said gently. Smiling, my mother rose, and we went out into the bright day. As we went, she said, Well, now you're started, my little dear. In round trees, a young assistant in the fur department persuaded her to try on a sable coat. There was no question of her buying, it It was far beyond her purse, but she held its collar under her chin and looked at herself in the long glass with an intent, fixed gaze, her invariable expression when she was trying on a dress or hat. It was as though she were seeking in her reflection someone not herself, some image in the mirror held, and if she looked closely enough, that image would surrender. One of these days, I said to her, I'll buy you a fur coat. My ambition was personal and selfish, but twisted through it, a living nerve was the anguished wish to please her by getting myself success and praise. Now that she is dead, it no longer frets me to be without honors, in the plural. A day in Scarborough, like any other, no... We did all the proper things without meeting a single failure. The sun shone and a light wind lifted the valley trees. A few words she said in the train marked the difference. I've taken many journeys with you, very long, some of them. We'll go many more journeys, I answered. No, my time is over. You will go journeys, my little love. You're a Thursday's child, far to go. There was no trace of bitterness in her voice, yet she knew then, knew as the body knows these things with a mute grief, that already I had my back to her.
0: Tony Morrison will read from Guardian Angel.
1: Thank you. If something happens and I don't seem to be carrying my voice, just raise your hands and I'll realize that I'm not manipulating this properly. Okay. We were passing out of church, Vanessa and I, nodding and smiling largely from our false, too kind Sunday faces. We were being moved along the aisle toward the back, our feet pushing in little steps forward with the crowd. We glanced down to see if we were about to scrape someone's heel in the aisle carpet. Why, even as we looked at it, the very instant we stared, we couldn't recall the color. We were leaning forward from our shoulders so that our necks felt soft and full of sweet low murmuring. How do you do? How's your mother? And suddenly we smiled at the ceiling over the heads of solid citizens in glazed white collars, their hands out, shaking other hands, their fixed, benevolent smiles, the same for all. We had to push in our hips to get round the end pew and to turn into the long, narrow aisle at the back. Vanessa jerked my arm. I felt her cold breath on my cheek as I turned. I looked suddenly into her face and I could feel her heart beating. Aunt Grace, that's the room, she said. The long wooden drop that shut off the Sunday school parlors from the rest of the church had been raised, and I peeked into the room. We'd gone to that room as children, but I never remembered seeing it as part of the church before. It looked so different. She simply hurled me toward it, and I turned to apologize to Mrs. Gonzalez, whom I'd almost upset. Do forgive me. Vanessa grasped my arm hard, and then she let go and went into the center of the lonely place. A ragged songbook, the edges softened into a kind of gray fluff, was lying on a frail, varnished table. A small organ, with red velvet behind the ornate openwork design in the front, stood in the right near a flock of ugly, clattering, hard chairs, I'd seen those things most of my life, but now, as part of the church, they all looked different from ever before, more exposed, more bleak and worn. The carpet was like that other carpet. I looked, and all the time I was seeing it, I couldn't recall the color. My niece put her hand on her forehead and slowly, and then dropped it, glaring straight ahead. She looked slender. And childlike in her flowered silk with the hair hat pressed back hair hat pressed back in front, and her startled, tender face all exposed and gleaming, she was like a little child who had lost her voice and swallows and swallows to regain it, twisting her handkerchief around her thumb. I thought this room was enormous. She brought out finally, I felt her shocked breathing go through me. I always feel it when she's scared or disappointed or about to cry. Oh, you couldn't have thought that, Vanessa, I said. But there must have been hundreds and hundreds here that night of the bazaar. I was only four, but I remember the crowd. I was so frightened of everybody, and I just wrapped Mama's skirt around me Anytime anyone looked at me. All I can remember are huge, moving, black skirts like tents, and the most I could see was a silver belt buckle, and sometimes I felt a hand come down on my head for a second. Then that door over there came open, and the room seemed to be larger even, like a ballroom. The floor looked bright and slippery. I remember that, she said firmly. We both glanced down at the carpet. How extraordinary, I muttered, Yes, it was, Aunt Grace. She came in that door over there. Vanessa looked up at me. Fleta did, she said softly, and looked away. If you'd seen us there, I couldn't have made you believe that this 21-year-old girl and myself had ever sat under a grape a barber at my house, laughing in the sunshine, with our heads back on our shoulders and our hands lying free, Palms up to the light. You couldn't have believed that this child could open those odd lips and send out a strange peal of laughter that made me join and started off old Mr. Bates and the vegetables and weeds to laughing too and waving at us through the corn. You couldn't believe that her sober face was ever shining with the most delicious open laughter that united everyone in a second. And made us all want to protect her and keep her happy. Oh, she would go rocking off down the garden path sometimes, her golden head among the flowers and lean against the apple boughs just to laugh. Her face turned toward the sky, her hands and body limp against the tree, open to sun and light. Sometimes at a picnic with yellow leaves shaking down all around us, she would go into a perfect delirium of joy so that her brooding, self-absorbed face was transfigured and we would, one by one join her with delicious laughter laughing at nothing, absolutely nothing, as the yellow leaves fell but she's an only child and subject to rages and resentments as well you aren't listening to me, Aunt Grace, she said twitching my sleeve Fleda came in that door. She had on a cream net dress over rose-colored satin, and it had a long train. Little children were riding in the train. "Now, Vanessa," I said, they couldn't." She looked resentful, insisted that they did. They were swinging from the ruffles on her sleeves and hanging from her belt and shoulders. She moved slowly, like this and she was looking straight ahead at someone and walking toward him, smiling and holding out her hand. I'd always been frightened before. I'd never made a move to leave Mama at any sort of party. But you always laughed when you got home, I said. Oh, sure I did, but this time I was good and scared of everyone, and I broke away from Mama and walked across the room to her without any fear at all. Those little children were hanging to her like sleepy fat, bees, but I pushed right through and took her hand. She looked down at me and I looked up. She stood very still, a look of serene awe around her head. Her face lifted angelically as if again she were looking up, up, with rolled back, melting eyes. Oh, that door opened all of a sudden and my life was changed. Vanessa forgot about me. She stared at the door as if she were acting the scene and reacting it over and over, her hands even making little ghost gestures of surprise and then homage. And there in her neck and eyes was shining the weakness of her, the inability to make up her mind or grasp a situation. And in her parted lips, I saw the dark, struggling part of her, the solemn, Never resentful Self-absorption She gave her peeling Unexpected laugh As if she'd seen through All her illusions And for a second Was shining out above herself And her blindness Transformed into that Golden all laughing being Warm with sun and life But I knew she was Merely laughing Because we were stepping out Of the empty church door Into the Sunday noontime Of our village That was always her greeting for the outdoors her enchanting intimate laughter across the street at the engine house four men sat pressed into armchairs arms folded on chests feet crossed, pipes going we could see the new fire engine through the large open door and I remembered the days when four great black horses would plunge into the street men hanging from the ladders on the side of the rattling engine Little boys running down the road behind. The minister's boy stepped along with his enlightened chin held high, his bland pink cheeks shining with cleanness and health. I'm sure Vanessa didn't see him when she answered his cordial, rather effeminate hello. I'm sure she saw only a vague face and suit passing outside her. I know that at four years of age... At the Presbyterian Bazaar, Vanessa hadn't seen Fleeta Bain, whom all of us have known for years. I saw Fleeta that evening. I was about 18 at the time. I remember her perfectly. Her dress did not have a train. Four meager children with sleek, thin hair walked beside her. Fleeta herself was distraught and grief-stricken, her large eyes full of misery and pity for the race because I have since decided, she saw in each person her suffering self. I heard somewhere that she was wretched that night because of unrequited love and she'd come home from the city to our village for peace and a quiet, painless life, leaving in the past all the chaos and violence of the other, the dark hurt of thwarted purposes and desires. She was heartbroken that night, almost too miserable to know where she was and behind her walked her abominable old aunt, Clacky Weir, wearing one of her atrocious bonnets that she created out of plush and ribbons from candy boxes. Some said that Fleeta had martyred herself for her old aunt, that she had no other relatives, that she felt the most remarkable and unselfish love for the creature. Others said that they pitied Aunt Clacky because she had a lot to put put up with from Fleeta, who tried out all her lessons in spirituality and the higher life on her aunt. You know, Aunt Grace, <coughs> I think I have to stop and tell Fleda about just now, she said very low, looking ahead with that intent, eager look. But it's so near lunchtime. Oh, Fleeta doesn't think of food. No, of course not. Must we stop, dear, I said. You know I ought to get home to Wendell and the children. You go and let me run along home. No, she said slyly. No, I'll only stay a moment. I want her to understand how my life changed that night in 1904. You know, Aunt Grace, she's so... Yes, I know, I said hastily. Fleeta always makes me feel as if she pitied me because I'm a married woman and the mother of twins. She always reminds me of my struggles in Chicago when I went there to become a great singer. When I sit down in her house, I'm aware that I have failed. I see myself, suddenly, as I once dreamed I would be, singing with my head back, my voice entering all the people and rousing them so that they would, they too would feel a singing in themselves, a mysterious response to my voice. Oh, perhaps I hate to Bay and perhaps I am deeply indifferent to her the door was standing open Vanessa had rung I prayed that old aunt was either in the cellar or in the attic she was so stingy she wouldn't accept an invitation out for a meal if she had food that might spoil she'd stay at home and eat it <clears throat> oh Fleda cried Vanessa The big screen door opened and Flita stood in the dark doorway. She was smiling her mysterious little smile. She wore an ordinary dress and it hung longer in back and was bunched and gathered around the waist abominably. I was sure that Aunt of hers made her wear it for economy, or perhaps she wore it as discipline in some of her spiritual studies. Vanessa had forgotten me. She was standing in the hall, one hand on her chest, The other clenched out in front of her. What darlings you are to come and see me. I peeped and Aunt Clacky was absent. We can stay just a moment. Vanessa has something she wants to tell you. Fleda turned to her with shining eyes. Her lovely thin mouth opened, her long fingers with their bird-beaked nails working mysteriously as if she had some concealed tatting. She spoke gently. Her voice low and deliberate, but there was something enchanting in the secret special thing she made out of Vanessa's merely wanting to tell her something. She made it all into something strange and lovely. Suddenly, our being there together, waiting to hear words, just words, waiting to speak from our throats and hearts, something inexpressible, made me see Fleda for an instant as Vanessa must always see her. She glanced at Vanessa, and then as she looked at the girl's rapt, almost trance-like face and body, such a look of sadness and pity came on her face, such patience and deep, deep sorrow and understanding that I had to like her. What is it, Vanessa? The girl took hold of the curtain and fitted the edge over her finger She didn't know at that moment that Fleda was her whole life, that she needed and loved and wanted no one but that woman's face and soul there before her, that infinite understanding and tenderness making all the world so strange and splendid and her whole being vital and angelic. She swallowed and smiled helplessly. How are your little children, Mrs. Devree? Now the moment had changed The mention of children The recalling of my married state Gave me that darting suspicion of Flita Something cold and hard entered the room Her face was the same but I felt a coldness Like the cold that seeps out and slowly paralyzes Above her head was a large framed painting of a Madonna With a very fat bare child in her arms Perhaps the aunt had hung it there Below the picture, below the glorious mother curves and breast and generosity, sat Fleda, her sorrowing face, and hurt eyes pointed straight at me. They are always well.
0: <laughs>
1: oh, how unusual. <clears throat> I thought children were always having things. Well, just little sicknesses, I said. Oh, don't let's talk about children, cried Vanessa. No, are we gonna talk about you, darling, instead? She laughed enchantingly. All right, let's talk about Vanessa. She's beautiful. She has something to tell. I always wonder if they are being really honest. What about you, Mrs. DeVries? I feel as if my singing helped to make my children. They wouldn't be as lovely. Now Aunt Grace, you know they're perfect wretches. Why that little Brian actually tottered over to me carrying the encyclopedia and crowned me with it yesterday. If you put out your hands to pet them, they grab your finger and bite you. My word lovely, if that's what you call lovely, if that kind of atrocious animalism is Fleeta laughed heartily. I'm sure I could never wipe a child's nose, she said. I was furious. I looked at the door, I closed my lips and counted to 20. Before I could suggest going, Plita had again pressed my arm with a sudden change of feeling. I saw a kind of deep regret on her face again, and all her spirit seemed to warm me gently, as if in her heart she longed only to make people glow and be rich in their qualities. Now she looked much younger than her age, Lita was 51, but when the coldness comes, she looked ageless, 90, 150 even. She said to Vanessa, dear, come and tell us now. We must know now. All of Vanessa's smartness had gone. She couldn't speak of her experience in the church in an ordinary tone of voice. She couldn't say anything about it in front of me. I was outside. I didn't understand. I wiped the noses of children and the chins of children, all smothered in cream of wheat. Vanessa, I said, I'm running along now. Oh, just a moment, Aunt Grace. I went to the doorway. No, I've stayed too long. No, really, Fleeta. Wait outside, Vanessa whispered, please. I waited outside the screen. I looked at the bridal wreath that made a snowy bank all around the cottage. I remembered Aunt Clacky and her monstrous sunbonnet with the long gingham cape in back and the starched strings poking in the nasturtiums around the elm. I remembered her sharp voice that was always out of patience. My soul and body, or good lands, always said with more disgust than I could ever summon. She was thin and old but she'd always taken supreme care of herself, never eaten anything that might shorten her life, doing anything that would endanger her health, or putting any sort of strain on herself. No one in Lodi had ever liked her. All of us, with the exception of a very few, pitied poor Fleeta, and some said it was a great mercy Fleeta could take up new thought and yogi breathing when she had to live with clacky weir. I thought when I saw the pansies in a tiny, decaying box of Flinda's career, of her bowls of flowers on magazine covers, her graceful little garden scenes in color, always faint and yet real enough to pass. I wondered if you had to choose between those flat, pointless little pots of daisies and sprays of fern and large beautiful flesh children that grow in you and break out of you into the world to sing and be wonderful. I knew that Vanessa would always be a bodily in her strong body and that she was physically the child of Belle and Edwin. But in that other part, the part that shines through the body, she was Fleeta's child. I wondered then if a time would ever come when she would break out of Fleeta to come to life in the world of flesh and blood and truth Grace um, later and Grace and her niece Vanessa are visiting Flita again on a summer day but this time Vanessa thinks she's in love with a boy from the town named Robert but of course she wants Flita's permission to marry him since she knows what Fleeta thinks of marriage as opposed to fulfilling oneself, and this is the short scene. Isn't it strange? said Fleeta quickly, bending over her folded hands, the cold glass beside her on a small table. Isn't it strange that no matter what you paint, it isn't ever the thing you meant to paint? It's never the great thing you think you're painting, never. Oh, yours, Fleeter, cried Vanessa. Oh, every one of yours is. I want to be a great painter like you when I see them. Oh, I feel as if I am a great painter just when I see that little boy with the pail. That meant everything to me. It means his hope for something more than this materialism and viciousness and greed and dishonesty. She looked straight ahead of her the light shining on her young face, her nose tilted, and those crazy fine hairs dancing on her gray forehead. I'm changed into something magnificent when I look at your pictures. But it hurts me, she said suddenly. I hurt, I don't know why, I hurt. Now she turned her whole body to the woman. Do you like Robert? She snatched a book and began turning the leaves. Robert? Robert? Do I know a Robert? Why, Fleeter, you said he was nice. Not that little man with the brown eyes. Oh, no. Yes, I think I do remember. I think I almost... Vanessa walked over to the window in silence. I drank slowly. Finally, she turned. Do you think a person would be making uh, do you think a young girl, for example A young girl would be making a big mistake in life, for example She rubbed her hand over her forehead As if she felt dazed at her own words Would a person be able to help toward a new world And marry two <clears throat> Some think they can, said Fleeta. People claim it can be done What would your opinion of Robert be if someone asked you what you thought of him? (laughs) I think he's exactly what he appears to be, a nice lad. There's something rather exquisite there, and fine, of course. But that's not enough. She sighed impatiently. I'm so eager for you to get through wasting your time with young fellows like that who are merely nice, agreeable, and a few other things. He's not good enough for you she said shortly. Robert is a darling, I put in quickly. He's about the finest boy in the world. Yes, I know, Mrs. Devree, but I suppose I think no man was good enough for Vanessa. She gazed at me for a second as if I had no place in their world. You see, I have always felt like her mother. You mean that I am better than Robert? Asked Vanessa slowly. My dear, let's don't talk about Robert. I'm not saying anything against the little chap. It's just that someday you will look back at the whole thing and laugh. (laughs) Then you'd say I'm not in love, she questioned. She stood there horrified and silent, her arms straight at her sides, her face toward Flita. I would most assuredly say you weren't. Love comes like an eagle. An eagle, she murmured. She moistened her lips. And do you feel sure night and day and all the time? Utterly. And no one can influence you or change you. You are certain. If I could do it quickly without thinking, I guess I'm I guess if I marry I'll have to do it that way, she said wretchedly. Not if you're marrying the right person. My darling, you've years and years before you. Someday someone magnificent and remarkable will come and help you do all the things you're living for and must live for. I feel as if I want to be a wife when I'm with him. Well, look around at a few wives. <coughs> look at the wives here in this town. Oh, wife is like a bird, she cried. They're so, they are beautiful. They're so, so, does Mrs. McGeehee look like a bird? <clears throat> or Mrs. Bulgren? Have they done anything for the world by just being wives? It's all absurd because you don't know what you're likely to get into. You know, nature does strange things with us if we aren't watching all the time. <laughs> I burst out laughing, but they didn't look at me. I even said, but that's our trouble. We're too watchful. We're either that or being watched. Fleeta heard, but she didn't look up. Finally, she said, the lemonade is very good, Grace. And don't feel that I'm being personal. My talk sounds very rude indeed, but you understand. I really don't, I replied, but she took no notice of it. Would a young girl like me, or I mean any young girl, Vanessa began and raised her chest for a second, holding it until her frightened eyes fairly stood out of her head. Would a young girl who had my ideas and who married be likely to take dope or drink if she married the wrong man (laughs) and had her idealism destroyed in a single night on her marriage (laughs) night, for example, she added flushing holding her hand over her cheek. For example, if a man couldn't see the fine idealism in a young girl, would she be utterly destroyed from a single contact with him? (laughs) What I mean is, do we become like the thing we love? Do we become base if what we love is base? Well, Leonardo said that in his notebook. My darling it's just that I she burst out laughing you must excuse me Vanessa but I can't help laughing at the thought of you and that little fellow (laughs) somehow the thought of you with your fineness coupled with that little man (laughs) there is something wonderful about Robert she said as if it were an act of will fleet aside I don't doubt that that's true of everyone on earth I'm not saying that he isn't a splendid little fellow for any girl in town, but you, well, you know what I believe you are. Vanessa twisted herself to the side of the couch, dragging her fist across her eye, then pounding it softly on her lap. Suddenly she drew up her breath, and with a great jerk of her chest and clenched her jaws, the tears starting out of her eyes. But we've had the crisis, said Fleta icily. Vanessa didn't move. Then she bent over her lap and stared at her thumbs, her lips closed tightly as if she were holding her breath. Sweat sparkled out under the little bunches of hair on her forehead, and she bent lower, her arms gripped over her waist as if her stomach hurt. We're divided now. But the pupil always rebels and then transcends the master. Why doesn't the master always resent it? Why does the master always resent it so much and suffer over it? It's something to be radiant and grateful about, happier than you've been. Fleela's gray tooth showed on the edge of her lip. She'd held her head firm, her fingers with their long polished nails feeling of one another forlornly. You must transcend me, Vanessa. You must make me see how worthless I am and how, oh, you must really be what my pictures will never be. You must be what I thought they were going to be. All my life I've seen something and believed in it and tried to paint it, but it never, never came out that way. And what I did was always nothing at all. But Vanessa, darling, you are the real thing, and you are going to be happy if you will do what I say. (laughs) The girl rose unsteadily. She put her hand up in one of those vague, helpless gestures, as if she were wiping webs off her face or felt amazed that her fingers could touch real flesh. She swallowed so that it jerked her whole body. Even her flowered dress looked mute with all the tiny blossoms on it and the broad velvet under her breast she tried to smile and then she glanced away clenching one hand suddenly she knelt down on the carpet gazing across at Fleda, her hands up her face toward the woman please tell me I'm not as good as Robert my darling child don't be absurd Tell me. Tell me I'm beneath him and everyone. or I can't love. I can't love. Fleda looked down at her fingers. Perhaps you are beneath him, she said coldly. Perhaps I haven't understood you. Perhaps you are just a girl like any other girl in this town or any other town, and I'm just putting my own wishes on you. But I did see something. I do see it. There's something, Vanessa, I'm sure of that. Really, Vanessa, it's time to go, I said. I got up feeling too angry and racked to do anything, to do or say anything important. I thought you had come to the place where you had escaped karma and where you could choose and live and be perfect without all these mistakes and sufferings and pointless tragedies and violences. But it may be you aren't ready and that your inner self and that in your inner self, you feel that and are warning me not to harm you with my high conception. It probably means you aren't ready. She turned her face away, her cheeks grayed, her hands folded. Come on, I said. Vanessa? I plunged toward the door. My cape gripped around me. I'm going, I muttered and tripped over the edge of a rug. (sighs) Flita turned and looked at me as if she didn't remember who I was. She stared for an instant, as strange as a bird with her small pointed face and her polished, beaked hands. Um, just a moment, she said. I want to say something to Vanessa. If you will excuse me. Vanessa stood with her head forward, her arms at her sides, her eyes on Flita. The woman was speaking while her mouth twitched and red lines came in little patches around it and under the eyes. Her hands were tightly clasped in her lap. She sat rigid, chin up, those little ears shining beneath the waves if I've disappointed you Vanessa of course I've disappointed you time and again I'm not going to pretend that I haven't but if I could only give you something in payment for all this could anything make up for my not being all you think I am she rose you don't even know that I failed you She was still rigid, looking straight into the girl's confused, frightened face. But your love makes me feel very, very quiet, like sitting somewhere all alone and not thinking of anything, just closing my eyes. Vanessa reached for a piece of paper. She moistened her lips and sat down on the floor before Flita, a black thick pencil in her hand. She laid the paper on the bare floor and she drew quickly, her tranced face determined, her large eyes suddenly cold and strange. Now her jaws were clenched, and she... Your love makes me feel oh I'm sorry what well, she's drawing okay she laid the paper on the bare floor and she drew quickly her tranced face determined her large eyes suddenly cold and strange now her jaws were clenched and she looked up quickly and then downed at her paper glancing impersonally her arm moving as if all her will were in it once she seemed to shift her sight as if there was a possibility of sudden confusion and defeat clutching her and making that hand tear it apart then she bent lower over her paper, her teeth pressing her lip, the wild little hairs on her brow swept together in damp tails. I was standing in an uncomfortable position, but I did not move, even though I was more and more aware of my leg aching and all the <clears throat> hornets of heaven and hell seemed suddenly to sting my heel. In my discomfort, I saw for the first time that Fleda's chin wasn't firm. That soon the flesh would hang gray and soft, like moss, and that it would shake as she spoke. I saw that her hair was thin, and that she certainly tinted it, but all of this made her ravaged, lovely face more beautiful than it had ever been, and the shine of her eyes like something inside her, looking out in fright and dismay, too strange to describe or try to understand. Then Vanessa jumped up and thrust her picture into Fleda's hand. She waited, her lips tight again, as if she could not breathe until she heard the answer. Suddenly she clasped her hands before her as Fleda does, lifted her face, and with indescribable earnestness and pain said distinctly, "'Am I a great artist?' A strand of hair had fallen over Fleda's face." She didn't hesitate. Yes, she said with determination. I went toward them. I looked over Fleeta's shoulder at the drawing. It was made with many short blurred lines, some of them redrawn and not erased. It was sharp and almost piercing. But somehow it was Fleeta, even though Vanessa thought she had drawn an angel, a beautiful bare face, shorn of experience, shining mildly from the eyes, and the two delicate, lovely lips It was really Fleeta And in one corner was a great smudged print of Vanessa's thumb Like the definite earthy seal earthly seal of her will Or perhaps I put this into it Did I see from the eyes that were drawn rather crookedly Under the brows Fleeta's look of fear As if sin were all about her and the way of life would change her from a pearl to an empty, trampled husk if she reached out with her body toward the real sun, the real flesh of man that brings us, whether we care for it or not, to what we are, to our real selves. Fleda looked at me. I remembered suddenly that she hadn't asked me for my opinion of the sketch. She looked into me. She didn't move. Then she said, loving the universe with her eyes as if we were all clasped together. Help me take care of her. And I cried out in a different voice, with different eyes, holding my body firm and restrained, feeling my blood and bones vanish, standing like a wraith, an empty cherub. I will, I will.
0: Um, thank you you are all invited now to uh, join us in a reception uh, outside thank you no
3: you know it's going to